The Lord calls us to worship this morning from the book of Psalms, chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth, who have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants you have ordained strength because of your enemies, that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him? Amen. Father in heaven, we ask that we may come into your presence through your precious Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that you would hear us as we pray today, that as we have gathered as your people, you would be with us and pour out your Spirit upon us. We confess with our mouths that you are the only true and living God. You are holy and righteous and just, and we fall before you. We pray, Lord, that you would inhabit the praises of your people. We pray that you would speak through your word, that you would speak to us, not just that we would hear the words of truth, but that you would put them in our hearts, that we might believe them by faith, that we would walk in them. We pray, Lord, that we would see the Lord high and lifted up. We pray, Lord, that you would comfort us, be with us, guide us through this service of worship. And as we come to your table in just a few moments, Lord, we pray that you would feed us. We need cleansing. We need forgiveness. We need feeding. We need grace to be sustained. And we pray, Lord, that you would be pleased to care for us today, your people. And we join our hearts together now with one voice and pray together the prayer that you taught your disciples to pray, saying out loud, Our Father, who art in heaven, Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. This morning for our confession of faith, we're going to recite together the Apostles' Creed. It's on page 845 in the green hymnal if you'd like to look there. I'll begin by asking you, Christian, what do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day He rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven 
and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Hear these words of assurance from the New Testament book of 1 John, chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves Him who begot also loves Him who is begotten of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is He who overcomes the world but He who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Amen. Let's continue to worship now by turning in your hymnal to number 460, Amazing Grace. reading, we're going to be reciting together 
Psalm 128. It's on page 832 in your hymnal. Page 832, Psalm 128. I'll begin with the light portion. Please respond out loud together with the bold. Blessed are all who fear the Lord, who walk in His ways. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your sons will be like olive shoots around your table. May the Lord bless you from Zion all the days of your life. Peace be upon Israel. Let's stand together again as we continue to worship singing hymn number 427, Amidst Us, Our Beloved Stands. Number 427. pastoral prayer time, I wanted to pray for 
uh, our church family together uh, as we consider and think about coming to the table of the Lord's grace in just a few moments. What a, what a privilege and a blessing beyond just simply doing a, a, a recitation or a repetition of the sacrament. This is meant to be a covenant sign and seal for God's people. So I want to pray for you that this would be a time of true nourishment and feeding upon Christ. I also would like to pray for our missionaries, uh, that we would consider and think of them as they labor as unto the Lord in the specific tasks that God has given them, and that we would have joy and delight not only in participating with them in giving and in praying for them, but also as we seek to be on mission with the Lord as well, sharing the gospel with those that He has put in our path. Let's go to the Lord in prayer now. Father, we thank You for being able to call upon You to be in Your presence because of the Lord Jesus Christ. We know and confess it is not because of any good or righteousness in ourselves that we stand before You. It is because of the Lord Jesus alone. And so, Lord, we ask that we would be hidden under the shadow of your wings, that you would comfort your people, that you would guide us, that you would be with us. We pray, Lord, for those in our midst who mourn, that they might be comforted. We pray for those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, that they would be filled as they come to the table of your grace this morning. Lord, we also pray for those who are walking through deep, dark valleys of difficulties and trials, And there are many in our midst, some who are here today and some who couldn't be here today. And Lord, we lift up our church family to you. As brothers and sisters in Christ, we pray on behalf of one another, praying as though we hope our brothers and sisters are praying for us. We pray for those who are weak in their faith, who need building up. For those who are rejoicing, we rejoice with them. We think of the many celebrations that are taking place because of graduations and other accomplishments in families. And Lord, we pray that you would make those to redound for your glory alone, that your faithfulness and goodness has seen your people from the beginning to the end. And Lord, I do pray for our missionaries today. I lift them up to you, that you would encourage them. We, we support missionaries who serve here in the United States. We, we support those who serve around the world. And we pray specifically, Lord, praying for not just their missionary endeavors, though we do lift them up to you and pray that you would pour out your spirit upon them. But we also pray for them as humans, as people who have hurts and needs in their lives, who struggle with sin themselves and need to see your grace at work. They need your forgiveness. They need cleansing. And so, Lord, we pray for them that you would meet them right where they are. We pray that you would comfort them that you would provide financially for them and that you would build marriages, that you would build up their faith in you, that you would help their children and their grandchildren. Lord, we pray for all of the worldly cares that they have that are just like ours. And we pray that in the midst of those things that are going on in their lives, Lord, I pray that you would cause them to be able to give of themselves, that they would share the good news of the gospel even out of a place of need themselves that they would know that the good news they share is something that they need, first of all, to believe by faith. And Lord, we do pray that you would continue to be with us now in this service, that we would honor you, that we would love you, 
Lord, I pray for Your people that we would not be distracted this morning. We all have things going on that we brought in the doors with us this morning that are heavy on our hearts, that they're on our minds, and it would be easy and explainable to be distracted. But I pray, Lord, that You would sanctify this time this morning for us, that as we come to Your Word, as we come to this Lord's Supper this morning, that we would be able to focus our hearts and our minds on You, and that we would receive the food from Your Holy Word that You offer to us. Through Jesus Christ, Amen. Please remain seated now as we take an offering to the glory of God. Father in heaven, we thank you that we may return to you just a small portion of the many rich blessings that you have poured out on each of us in tangible ways that we see every day that we're reminded as we get up, as we sit at our tables, as we open our cupboards and our refrigerators, Lord, we are a blessed people beyond measure. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to give with joy and delight in knowing that we could never outgive you. And Lord, we do pray that our tithes and our offerings would be used for the sake 
of the glory of your name, that the spread of the kingdom would happen in our faithfulness because we're obedient to you. And Lord, I do pray for those in our midst who have spiritual needs that are financial needs as well. And I pray that you would meet them and that you would give us trust and hope in you that you do provide for your people. As your word says, I have never seen the righteous forsaken nor his seed begging bread. In Jesus' name, amen. I invite you to open your Bibles to the New Testament book of Titus, chapter 3. Titus chapter 3, our sermon is entitled this morning, Pursuing What is Profitable. Titus chapter 3, we'll be reading verses 8 through 15. This is the word of the Lord. This is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly, that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. But avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless. Reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. When I send Artemis to you, or Tychicus, be diligent to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Send Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their journey with haste, that they may lack nothing. And let our people learn to maintain good works, to meet urgent needs, that they may not be unfruitful. All who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Today we are finishing and concluding our study in the book of Titus, Ordinary Christian Living. Paul was concerned that the Christians on Crete would learn how to live their lives with the gospel in mind in every part of their lives. I read this week a a brief article and watched an interview in which Tim Keller, a PCA minister in the state of New York, said that after he was diagnosed with stage 4 pancreatic cancer in May of 2020, he underwent two years of cancer treatments, and he remarked in a recent interview that after his diagnosis he was praying and he wrote down two words, sanctification and focus. He said they were two words that were significant to him because he believed there was still much in his life that needed to be sanctified and focus because he believed there were things that he really needed to focus on, that the Lord would give him attention and a focus to detail and energy to do these things. I believe these are two really good words to summarize the end of the book of Titus. This letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a young minister as he was to serve the churches on the island of Crete. Without focus, Titus would be continually responding to little fires as they popped up, always succumbing to the tyranny of the urgent, perhaps being on the run and busy, looking productive, but leaving the main things undone and unkept. Instead of a complacent or lazy approach to his own sanctification, Paul urges Titus and the churches who were under his care to pursue hard after godliness, to know the truth, not just to hear it or to read about it or to say that those are things that spiritual people do, but to press hard into knowing the truth of God's Word. 
to walk in it, and to actively press on to good works that always accompany saving faith. I think those two words are helpful for us even here at Lebanon. Sanctification and focus. I think they're good questions for us to ask of ourselves. How well are you and I prioritizing the main things? And maybe you're a list person and you like to have lists. Do you have the main things on your list and are you getting to them? Or do they always seem to get moved to the next sheet of paper? Are you able to get to the main things? And what are you pursuing in godly living right now? Not something that you hope to do when life is less crazy or when it's less busy. But what are you pursuing in godly living right now? In what areas of new obedience are you praying to the Lord for specific grace and depending on Him? Lord, if you don't do this, it won't happen in my life. In what areas are you pursuing this? As we end this book of Titus, I want to look at these last verses under three headings. Number one, continually affirm the gospel. Number two, carefully avoid useless arguments. And number three, joyfully labor together. So number one, continually affirm the gospel. Paul is concerned that Titus pursue what is profitable. Don't get sidetracked. Keep your priorities straight, Titus. Don't let the tyranny of the urgent be what drags you around. Focus, son, in the faith. He's telling him, continually affirm the gospel. He says in verse 8, these things are faithful, they're good for God's people to know. He is referring to what comes after verse 8, but he's definitely referring to the summary he gave in verses 4 through 7. He says, stand firm in verse 8. Affirm constantly. Right doctrine is essential. Knowing the truth is absolutely needed. And in a day when people say that doctrinal distinctives are what you believe about truth and what you believe about revealed truth in God's Word, it's not divisive. It's not divisive to know the distinctives of even our Reformed faith. It's absolutely necessary. We believe that our doctrines that we hold dear as revealed in the Scriptures are the foundation that supports every ministry endeavor we we take up to perform for the Lord's glory. We don't do them because we need programs. We do them because we are convinced and convicted that the Lord is leading us in them. And may He lead us, and may we as God's people seek His face that we would affirm constantly and continually have on our mind the truth of the Gospel. Paul wanted Titus to remind himself and to remind the churches of the nature of God's salvation. He just said in verses 4-7 four through seven that it's by grace, not by works. Don't let anyone, Titus, get caught up in this idea and get caught in the doldrums of living that in order to receive grace from God, you have to earn it. Don't let anyone believe that it's possible to earn God's grace, that when you come to the table of His grace, it's not earners who come here, it's beggars. People who need grace, not people who've won it. And as they go out into the world, help them to remember they're doing good works because Jesus loves them. They're not doing good works hoping that He will. And these distinctives are important. They're necessary. Otherwise, we get caught up in our hearts and we're mixed up about God and mixed up about who we are. And we have no idea what gospel we're going and telling people. And that's why Paul is so so serious about this and he wants to remind them. He says in Philippians chapter 3, Rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things again to you is not tedious, 
And it is actually safe. It's good to be reminded. I need to hear the old, old story. I need to be reminded of Jesus and His love. That's why I'm part of His family. That's why we can pray in our services. Heavenly Father, hear us when we pray. Because of Jesus and His love. It's not because I did something good this week and have a good feeling. And so now I can stand in His presence. And you shouldn't be down in the dumps when you see in your life a repetition of sin after sin. You should repent of it. You should fall on your knees before your Heavenly Father and repent of your sin. But you do so by faith. You don't do it to earn His forgiveness. You do it because you know you already have it. And you know that it hurts His heart. If you have your Bible with you still, look over at 1 Timothy chapter 4. I want to read a few verses here about standing firm and standing on the truth. This is an exhortation that Paul gave to Timothy, another young man in the faith, in the ministry. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13 Paul tells Timothy, until I come again, give attention to reading, to exhortation, and to doctrine. Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given you by prophecy with the laying on of hands by the eldership. Meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them, that your progress may be evident to all. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them, for in so doing, these things you will both save yourself and those who hear you. If Titus is to succeed and do the work that the Apostle Paul has told him to do, that God has called him to do, he has to be standing firm on the truth. And it requires rigor. It requires action. He says, be careful. Pay close attention. Think about what you're thinking, Titus. Be mentally intent on it, knowing the truth of the Gospel. Are you looking for the little foxes that are running around in your mind? that seek to steal the truth away? Are there crumbs of the Gospel that the enemy is coming and stealing away that you're not believing yourself? Are God's people not hearing the truth? Are they distracted? Do they believe the wrong things? Encourage them. Exhort them. Help them to walk in the truth. And then he says to continually affirm the Gospel. You should be walking a life and believing a doctrine that leads to action, to actual practice. Doctrine is not something that you do in the classroom. It's not something that you only do in your quiet time. Doctrine is something that you do every day in your living. And notice that he says here in these verses that these things are good for those who have believed in God. He doesn't say walk in good works and then you can believe in God. He says belief in God actually precedes good works. It doesn't replace them. Belief in God precedes Good works. Bible study is not an end in and of itself, just gathering knowledge to myself. Rather, it points to the beauty of Jesus and the glory of God in worship. Reading your Bible should cause you to fall on your face in His presence and rejoice that this God would reveal Himself to you and give you a copy of His Word, or maybe in some cases, multiple copies of His Word in your household. And it should cause you to live a life of careful devotion. How am I living? What am I doing with my life? How am I spending the days that the Lord has given me? Am I living as though I know tomorrow is not promised? Am I doing today what I know the Lord has given me to do? Am I I setting it aside? Yes, I should be doing good works. And so it's helpful for us to ask ourselves, 
Am I paying careful attention to my beliefs? Am I really thinking about what influences what I believe? Is social media more influential to me than the reading of the Bible? Am I spending more time doing that? Do I know the doctrines of a holy religion? Am I spending time understanding why it's significant that Jesus came and was born of a virgin, that He lived a sinless life? Why was it necessary? Why are we celebrating the sacrament of the Lord's Supper? These are significant things. Not so you can come to church and know the right answers or know what's going on during a service. Though those things are helpful. But these things we believe are life and vitality for your soul. You need to feed upon Jesus. And you can't possibly live on Him only thinking about these things one day a week. It's absolutely necessary for you to be in His Word. To feed upon Him. To ask Him, as the choir sang last week, speak O Lord, take Your truth and plant it deep in us. Shape and fashion us for Your glory. That the light of Christ might be seen today in our acts of love and our deeds of faith. Our choir sang that last Sunday in our call to worship. And I I pray that often as I read God's Word. And I pray that You will too. That He would show You His Word and that it would be what comes out of You. That it would be what comes out in conversation. It comes out as the motivation of what you do. You don't do good things hoping that people will see you. You do good things hoping that they will see Him. So number one, continually affirm the Gospel. That's one priority that the Apostle Paul gave to Titus. He also says, carefully avoid useless arguments. Not only do they threaten the peace and purity of the church, but they waste your time, Titus, And actually, you as a minister have taken an oath to not get involved in these things that would disrupt the peace and purity of the church. And actually, each of us here at Lebanon have taken membership vows that we would protect it and guard it. And our elders have taken oaths that they will do everything they can to protect it, not only from our adults, but also for our children. That there wouldn't be any needless controversies happening. That wouldn't be good for the building up of the body and the caring of souls. So what does he say to avoid? In verse 9, he's saying that doctrinal precision is not the enemy of good works. You need to know the truth. And there are going to be people, Titus, in your ministry, in the churches, who are going to ask questions. And they might seem tricky or slippery. And it's important that you should be very careful to think about them and study and answer them. Paul is strongly advising Titus to keep the plain things the main things. Don't get stuck down in the controversy somewhere just for the sake of the controversy because someone likes the sound of their own voice without a very discerning eye of protection from Titus for the churches they will be at risk to be embroiled in endless debates that do nothing to bring glory to God and do nothing to encourage God's people it's just a constant controversy or something that's going on he says don't get involved in that he mentions three things foolish disputes genealogies and contentions and strivings about the law. Foolish disputes. You could imagine there are things in the Christian life that it's pretty obvious that there's liberty, there's room for grace, there's freedom. Think about a few things that people get pretty pretty heated and hot under the collar and maybe, as, as my boss used to say, get their hackles up if you mention it and you have a particular opinion. Maybe you have an opinion about how children should be raised, whether they should go to public school or private school. 
taking dogmatic positions about this as though there is a thus saith the Lord about a specific option. We're going to have different convictions, but God's people are to learn how to live with one another and and give each other freedom where the Gospel has given us freedom. Maybe views on whether someone should be dating first before a proposal for marriage. Or no, it should be called courtship and this is how it should be done. Or, Or maybe you have a particular view on whether someone should or should not enjoy a glass of wine every once in a while with dinner. All of these things that the Bible has given freedom in Christ to follow God's Spirit in us. He's saying, Titus, don't get caught up in these controversies. It's foolish, it's wasteful of time and energy. And then he talks about genealogies. And why is that significant? We have genealogies in the Bible. Go to the book of Matthew, there's one. So certainly genealogies are not unnecessary. But there were people who who loved to find, and, and they hoped to find, they could see their cousin of their brother, of their uncle's third cousin's sister, and go all the way back and say, well, actually, that relative of mine was someone who sat and ate dinner with the Apostle Paul. And that's the, they, they got all worked up about and they tried to make significant claims about it. And this is why I'm more spiritual than you. He said, don't even bother with stuff like that. And so maybe nobody here is saying something like that, but maybe, maybe you might have a little bit of an air of, of confidence about your last name or where your parents lived or whether they were here 200 years ago at Lebanon worshiping. And praise the Lord if they were. But he's saying don't get caught up in those things. The ground is level at the foot of the cross, brothers and sisters. We all need grace. That's what he's encouraging them. And then he says contentions and strivings about the law. It's people who love word battles and like to see nuance and little meanings and trying to make connections that go back to the Judaism laws that the people followed. They were always trying to just get a little thing in with the law. And if they could get that in, then there was a contention. And they just like arguments. And they like to have things be on edge every once in a while and something to have to fight or an enemy to have to be after. And so he says, don't get involved in those things. And then he gives a very strong word about those who continue to try to drum up these kind of discussions and and issues. He says, if after the first and the second admonition they are unwilling to listen, then you're to do something very, very strong. He says in verse 10, reject a divisive man or woman. If they've been warned once and twice and they still refuse, they still are trying to stir up something in the church, then reject them. Reject them. Church discipline, then, according to the Apostle Paul, is good for the body in verses 10 and 11. To reject here is strong language. It means to excommunicate, to turn them out of the body of Christ. And isn't it interesting? I was reminded this week in a discussion that this process of church discipline, according to the Lord Jesus in Matthew chapter 18, is not something that begins with the local church session, it's actually something that begins with God's people. According to Matthew 18, if there's an offense, you go to your brother or sister and try to reclaim them in the Lord. Tell them their sin, that they might be able to repent of it. That's not the elders coming in and swooping in. That's us loving one another enough to say, this happened. And I believe that it's an area of weakness in your character and in your life. And I'm not saying it so that I feel better about me. I'm concerned about you. That the enemy would get a foothold in your life. And I love you enough to tell you I'm risking you hating me. Because I have to tell you the truth. And maybe you can say it with tears in your eyes because you know the Lord delivered you from the very same thing. Sometimes the things we notice in others, we notice them because the Lord has revealed it to us. And through weeping and sorrow, we know that He delivered us through 
the grace of His Spirit. And perhaps what someone needs to hear is truth in love. It is loving to tell the truth. It's for reclaiming brothers and sisters, not for losing them. And absolutely, he's saying this is not for political purpose at all in the church. There's no place for that, Titus. You can't be involved in that. Only in truth can love flourish. I can't sweep sins under the rug. He's telling him, you can't sweep sins under the rug, sins against God's people, and expect for love to flourish. It can't. It has to flourish in truth. So I ask you this morning, is there a conversation that you need to have? A loving conversation to speak the truth in love. And maybe you're, you're worried about it, you're wondering about it. Or maybe according to what Paul is, is telling Titus, maybe there's a conversation you should lay aside. A favorite topic that you love to wax eloquent about. That you have a lot of information, but it's not really building anyone up. Maybe there's a topic you should lay aside. Lastly, joyfully laboring together. For the sake of the gospel. I want you to see in verses 12 and 13 something beautiful. Something absolutely beautiful that God does for His church. And He does it in every case throughout every generation. He always does this. He provides for His church in verse 12 and 13. He says, When I send Artemis to you or Tychicus, be diligent to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. And He's saying that God has already raised up someone to relieve you, Titus. Don't be worried, but also don't give in to your own self-press that you believe you're indispensable in the church. That unless you're there at Crete, the churches will crumble. Only one person, Titus, is indispensable in the church of the Lord Jesus, and it's himself. It's himself. He raises up people. He takes care of his church. Hudson Taylor of the China Inland Mission said, God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supply. He will always provide for His people. He will take care of His church. But what this doesn't mean is that we'll always have everything that we think we need to do it. Have you ever had to step out on faith and trust the Lord not having the resources and everything marked out? It's possible. People live that way by faith. It's not saying, Hudson Taylor wasn't saying that we will have everything we need that we think, but we will have exactly what we need to accomplish God's purpose and mission in the world. He said... He talks about Zenos the lawyer. Think about the ways that God provides for His church. Zenos the lawyer probably would have been very helpful for these Judaism types who wanted to to have arguments about the law. So what does Paul do? He sends a lawyer. If they want to talk these things, then I'm going to send someone who knows the lingo, who can speak them and, and put these things to rest. And then he talks about Apollos, an eloquent speaker who had mighty gifts in the church. And if you know the history of these two brothers, if Paul had given into the press about Apollos on him, he may have seen him as a rival and not as an ally. He may have refused to think that he could be gifted and used in the church. And nevertheless, by God's Spirit, he didn't. He sees him as a brother, as someone needful for the building up of the church. Joyfully laboring together. In verse 14, I want you to notice something that Paul said about these people. This is the Apostle Paul who used to be Saul. He said, let our people, let our people learn to maintain good works. I think this is something to notice. What a remarkable work of God in Paul's life. This was a zealous Pharisee who outranked every Pharisee. He outranked all of them. And that God would work in his heart in such a way that he would talk about Gentiles and call them our 
people. What a work of God. He would call them brothers and sisters. They are my brethren in the Spirit. They will be with us in glory. Blessed is the unity of those who are redeemed. When you sit in this room together as brothers and sisters in Christ, they may not be blood family, all of them, but you are sitting with the family of the redeemed. And we will spend eternity with one another. Blessed is the unity that the Lord Jesus gives His people. And I think it's a good reminder to us as you think about Paul's history. You should think about your own. Never forget that you, yourself, are a trophy of the Lord's grace. All of us are the chief of sinners. None of us has arrived. And so when he says in verse 15, All who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in faith. Grace be with you all. This is not a throwaway phrase. It's a benediction. It's It's a praise of God's provision for His church. But it's also a means of being connected to Him by grace. He's saying grace be with you all. Don't forget to have grace for yourself, but also have grace for others. I want to finish with reading Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. As we think about pursuing what is profitable and doing so together as the family of God, the church of the living God. He says, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to you and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind striving together side by side for the faith of the gospel. That is what God God has called us to here at Lebanon. We are to stand together with one mind, striving side by side together for the faith of the gospel. How do you do that? You do it in your home, day in and day out, sitting at the table, reading the Bible, praying together. You do it coming to church, not forsaking the gathering of yourselves together. You do it by investing in the church. Not, I'm not talking about money. I'm talking about investing of yourself. Teaching our children or our young people, being involved in their lives. How are you doing? What's going on in your life? Praying for one another. Knowing enough about one another, as we said on Friday night, to be able to encourage one another to love and good deeds in the gospel. That I know my brothers and sisters and I know where they might be weak. Where I might pray for them and encourage them. And I want to encourage you this morning as we get ready to come to the table of the Lord's grace. That this is not a table for perfect people. This is a table for people who need grace and mercy. And who cling to it by faith. Not coming having your act together. But coming to the Lord Jesus so that He might cleanse you. And free you from sin. Amen. At this time we're going to... Come to the table of the Lord's grace. I'm going to ask the men who are going to be helping with administering the Lord's Supper to please come forward at this time to prepare the table.
Before we read the words and institution, I just want to say a few words about the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, what a sacrament is and what it, what it isn't, why Jesus gave it to us and what it does for us. There is real spiritual benefit and nourishment in this meal. Jesus gave us in His wisdom this sign of His grace that He is the one who delivers us from our sins and He promises new life to all who come and participate by faith. You don't participate here hoping that Jesus will do something miraculous in your heart. You come here knowing that He already has. It is the beauty of His gift and not anything of your own. We say that this is a sign. It is a a visible thing that you can see. It's tangible. You can touch it. You can also taste it and smell it. The Lord Jesus in His wisdom gave us these signs that point to something. We don't believe that the bread or the wine or the juice turns into something and changes something in us. We don't believe that they are miraculous things that, that we touch. We believe that these outward symbols are things that point to an inward spiritual reality that Jesus does in us by faith. We don't believe that this bread or the wine does anything to us today. We are remembering this meal because He told us to. And it points to something He's already done in us. And it's a seal to us. Like the the graduation diploma that some of our graduates will get very shortly. It's like the seal that's on it. There are signatures written on those pages. And then there's a seal stamped on it that says, we authenticate this person has done everything that is necessary to receive this honor of a graduate diploma. And what we see in the Scriptures is that the Lord Jesus gave us this sign as a seal. I know who belong to me. And these children of mine are mine and I don't lose them. And that's what this meal represents He sets His seal to this. It's a testimony of what He's done, not of what we've done. And lastly, just a brief word on why this is an efficacious sign to God's people. It's not efficacious. It doesn't do what God intends it to because of me as the minister. And it's not because of you, the person receiving it. It is absolutely efficacious because of the Lord Jesus. Because He delights to encourage you in your faith. That's why He does it. He is a gracious and loving Heavenly Father. And He desires to encourage His people to walk in faith. So I'll read now the words of institution as we come to the table of the Lord's grace. The Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 giving instructions on the institution of the Lord's Supper. He says, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which He was betrayed, He took the bread... And after giving thanks, he broke it in the sight of all the disciples. And he said to them, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after the supper. And he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, You proclaim the Lord's death until He comes again. We believe that in this meal is is shown to us Christ, our Passover, was crucified and offered as a sacrifice for us once and for all. He is the true Passover. He never has to offer it again. It was done once for His people. And it satisfies God's divine justice. Hallelujah. It is done for us. As we continue to look at this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 
There's another word that we need to hear. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord Jesus. But let a man or a woman examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, that we may not be condemned with the world. So it's important. It's not a, a recommendation. It's a, it's a command from the Scriptures that we would examine ourselves before we come to this table. That we would consider whether we are walking in faith or not. Not that you should sit here this morning and question your faith or try to work up a good spiritual feeling to feel good about yourself so that when you take part in the, the sacrament that you think, well, okay, I, I'm all right. It's time for you to, to do business with the Lord Jesus in His presence. Confess your sins before Him the ways that you have not done what He's called you to do or left undone the things that you know you should have. And ask for faith. Let's go to the Lord in prayer now in silent confession. Father in heaven, we confess before you our sins. Not only that we are sinful because of our participation in Adam's fall, that when he sinned, we also did. But Lord, also that we have sinned in thought and word and deed ourselves. Even this day, this Lord's day, we have transgressed your holy laws. And Lord, we pray that you would forgive us, that you would forgive our sins and heal us because of the Lord Jesus Christ and His precious blood spilt for us. Lord, we have left undone things that we ought to do. And we've done things that we know we ought not to have done. We pray, Lord, that You would hear us as we confess our sins by faith, knowing and believing that You hear us and that it is Your delight to cover our sins and to cleanse us because of the Lord Jesus alone. In Jesus' name, Amen. Just a few words about the, the bread and the cup this morning. The bread represents the body of the Lord Jesus Christ that was brutally beaten and broken for us. We believe that Jesus had a real body, that He felt real pain, that when the crown of thorns was crushed down upon His head, He actually did bleed real blood. The cup represents two things. It represents the blood of the Lord Jesus, that He actually spilled His precious blood for us. We believe that it is His blood that cleanses us. And it is a good reminder to us that we can't be clean by anything that we do. You can't rub enough. There's not enough brillo in the world to take care of your guilt before a holy God. But Jesus spilled His precious blood for you that you might be healed and forgiven and cleansed. So as you come by faith today, you should rejoice to know He paid the penalty. There's no more penalty for you. You come because He did it. Hallelujah. What a Savior we have. Just a few words about fencing the table this morning. If you are not a believer by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you ought not participate in this table. If your children have not made profession of faith yet, even though they are covenant members of the church family, we ask that they keep their hands to their side 
until they make profession of faith. They are in the covenant. If you are resisting the Lord in some way, persisting in some sin, and have not truly confessed it and repented of it and turned away from it, you ought not come to this table. And if there is something that is going on between you and someone else that you've not been willing to make right and made every effort to make right, then you ought not come to this table. But this table is not for perfect people. It is a table for people who trust in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and cling to Him. So as you participate, as you hold the bread, as you hold the cup, and as you eat and drink them, do so by faith. These are God's gifts for you to nourish your heart. And He's telling you, I'm with you, I'm for you, I'm taking care of you. You are my children, I delight in you. Those are good words to hear. And they are blessed words to balm our souls. I'm going to pray one more prayer for us. Father, I pray that you would set aside these elements, this bread and this cup, that they would be for us what they represent, life and health through the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that we would, as we look at them, as we taste them and drink, I pray that we wouldn't look to them, but that you would give us spiritual eyes to look past them, that we would see the beauty of the Lord Jesus in them and His perfect sacrifice for His people. And may we hide ourselves under the shadow of Your wings. May You let us see Jesus in them. Feed us, O Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen. Lord Jesus said, This cup is the new covenant in My blood. Drink you all of it in remembrance of me. Having tasted and seen that the Lord is good, in just a moment we're going to stand together and sing one last hymn together, number 595, Let Your Heart Be Broken. Just after the table is covered, we will stand together and sing. Let's stand together and sing hymn number 595.
receive the benediction of our Lord from Hebrews chapter 13. Now may the God of peace, who brought up our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do His will, working in you what is pleasing in His sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.